in the Gospels, we see Jesus healing sick and relieving the infirmities of the broken. Um, and as you've noted, over 20% of the space in the Gospel records, um, you know, records of, of Jesus' life depict him as a, as a healer. There's a physical understanding of healing. There's a spiritual understanding of healing. And people seem to be healed miraculously. The blind made to see, the dying restored to life, the lame made well. Where does modern day healing fit into the conversation of, I hate to use this term, but the biblical view of healing? Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter. So each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work and renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host. And this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Trip Hawthorne, Cindy Foldenlore, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. This podcast is presented to you by Central Seminary a historic Baptist seminary founded in Kansas that now is diverse, cross-cultural, and ecumenical with a significant global footprint. Leading with the values of community, empathy, growth, and tenacity, Central Seminary equips students with the theological knowledge, spiritual insight, and practical skills needed to lead in an ever-changing world. We cultivate an inclusive, multi-language community of reflection where critical thinking and discernment are welcomed and encouraged. Central offers numerous graduate degrees and certificates, including Doctorate of Ministry in Creative Leadership, Master of Arts in Counseling, Certificates in Chaplaincy Studies, and Peace and Justice Ministries, and much more. Most programs are offered fully online. To learn more, visit cbts.edu or search for Central Seminary Kansas City. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Amy Julia Becker. She's authored several books, including White Picket Fences, A Good and Perfect Gift, and Small Talk. She has also uh, had a writing featured in Christianity Today, The New York Times, USA Today, uh, The Atlantic, Christian Century, and The Huffington Post. She also hosts a podcast. Uh, she now joins the Twofer Club, joining the CBF podcast for the second time. Uh, Amy, thank you for uh, coming back for a conversation. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be back. So uh, we had you on in 2018. Uh, anything, you know, to report in your life in the last four years? Oh, you know, it's been very dull. <laughs> Nothing has happened in the past <laughs> four years. Um, yeah, gosh. So, you know, I live in a small town in Western Connecticut and have three kids. And so as with everyone else in the world, uh, COVID 
as well as just the politics of the last couple of years have certainly affected our family. Although I feel like we were spared the hardships of people who were living in like a city during COVID. You know, we live in a place where you can get outside really easily and our kids were largely able to be in school in person. Um, so I'm really grateful for that, but it did redirect some of my energy for a number of those years in terms of how what our family needed. My husband runs a school so he was kind of all hands on deck in a different way. So um, that's been the, yeah, the biggest aspect of the last four years, but I did get a chance to work on a book, which is exciting um, and feels like it was a long time coming, you know, to have to go four years between these books. And yet it also feels like how on earth did I possibly get that done amidst all of the, you know, caring for three different children on Zoom classes uh, simultaneously and, you know, trying to, eke out a little bit of a professional life in the midst of that. Well, just hearing you say that makes me feel so much better. You know, I've got a book due for my doctoral program at the mm. end of the fall semester. So, um, okay. Yeah. It, it can be done. Right. Even, right, even you know, with I mean, it is that like, um, what do they say? It's kind of a gross image, but like you eat the elephant one bite at a time, <laughs> <So>. <laughs> which I'm always like, Oh, I really don't like thinking about that. And yet it does, it is true, especially with these large writing projects where if you can break it down into small pieces and just do the next small thing, eventually there are all these words in one document <laughs> and it becomes a book. Well, tell us a little bit about the the podcast. I think when we had you on last, this wasn't even a, uh, a figment yeah. of your imagination. So uh, what is it and what are you hoping to accomplish through it? Yeah, so the name of the podcast is Love is Stronger Than Fear, and I started it actually right after, uh, you know, what felt like the world shut down in March of 2020, when I had been thinking for a while about trying to do a podcast of some sort. What I did for the first season was I just talked. I walked, walked through the book of Philippians, actually, in light of what was happening when it came to COVID um, and just thinking through what does it mean to be uh, people of hope and of prayer in the midst of a world that doesn't always make sense and where there's a lot of suffering and uncertainty. And then um, at the, you know, as you are well aware, in May of 2020, when George Floyd was murdered, there seemed like there was an opportunity for me to talk about the themes of my last book, White Picket Fences. And I'd always had this thought that if I had a podcast, I would love to interview people about each of the chapters of White Picket Fences and kind of have a conversation around whatever the theme or topic was. White Picket Fences, for listeners who don't know this, is a book about uh, me as a white, affluent, educated woman who comes from a position of social privilege, but is also a Christian and asking, what does it mean to be able to uh, respond to the divisions in our world, the social divisions with hope and healing uh, rather than anger or cynicism or despair? And so that led me into after George Floyd died and the book kind of, there was a resurgence of interest in the book. Uh, starting a podcast series of conversations with people rather than just me talking, which I found that I loved. I really loved being able to um, read books that people have written and talk to them about it, or just find people who are experts on topics that I don't know as much about and ask them questions. And so that has developed into a podcast that's really about um, 
what it means to be a participant in healing for personal pain and social division. So it's been really fun and rewarding to be able to do that. I mean, I'm sure you feel the same way about, you know, getting to talk, have these conversations and other people get to listen in. It's just been, it's been really great. Yeah. It's, it's hard to complain about getting, um, you know, cutting it edge books and great thinkers and sitting down having a conversation and just getting to listen to them you know you you've made that list too so well thanks I mean I think if you are a certain type of person and you know when you're talking about your doctoral uh, book and I can look around my office and all I see are stacks of books it's like we are people who really like books and so to get to talk about books and ideas with other people you know in a kind of semi-public but also this extended format is it's really thrilling for nerdy people like me. So <laughs> I do enjoy it. <laughs> All right. So uh, this this new book is, is kind of a change of pace from, from your last one, uh, To Be Made Well. This is an invitation into wholeness, healing, and hope. You wrote, my own longing for healing and wholeness began when I couldn't figure out a way to piece my body and soul together when doctors, alternative medicine, therapists, and my own willpower didn't have the answers. Take us a little deeper into uh, the personal story um, that, that you're um, kind of pointing to in the book. Yeah, so in the beginning of the book, I tell two different um, stories from pretty different chapters in my life. The first goes all the way back to high school when I was diagnosed with something called gastroparesis, which is kind of a fancy word for a paralyzed stomach. And so my internal organs, but especially my like gastrointestinal system had effectively shut down. Uh, the motility of it, the movement of that uh, part of my body was at operating at about 10% of what it typically would have been. And there was really no explanation from a, you know, kind of biomedical uh, perspective. And I, looking back on it, was kind of fine with that situation in the sense that I could eat anything um, and I was a teenage girl who was very aware of my body and size and weight. Um, and basically my food would not be processed by my body. I, it would eventually pile up in my stomach. I would regurgitate it. Um, so it was kind of a bulimic uh, situation, although there was this physiological root that happened first. I was sick for about six years in there's a, you know, that was a long story in and out of the hospital. Um, you know, at one point I weighed 87 pounds and doctors could not find a blood pressure. I mean, it was a really significant and severe situation. And it was not until I was in college and really began to look at ways to address that, not as a purely physical or purely psychological pro problem. I had gone back and forth in how I thought I should try to be made well. Um, it was really putting those things together that actually led to healing. And in some ways I stored that memory and experience for a long time because I kind of was like, yep, I got well. And it was this combination of physical and uh, emotional and uh, spiritual healing that happened. But it wasn't until I was in my 30s, so a good, you know, over a decade later, when I was a mom of three young kids and we moved to a new town, for about a year, I had pretty persistent lower back pain. And it got worse and worse. And to the point that I said to my kids, you know, I really can't have you sit on my lap and I can't pick you up and I 
you know, we tried a new mattress and I got massages and I tried to strengthen my core. I was trying to do all of these things. And eventually I was taking Advil every night in the middle of the night and often at other times as well. And I knew in my spirit, honestly, I was like, I do not want to be on medication for a aching back for the rest of my life. I had not done anything to injure my back. So I sat down with a woman who'd been recommended to me. She was a yoga teacher who had started off as a physical therapist. And we sat together and I said, you know, I think I have a problem with alignment. And I wondered if you could just give me some practices that might help. And she said, anytime I hear someone use the word alignment, I think that what is out of line uh, is in your brain more than it is in your body or in your life more than it is in your body. And when she said that, it just was like she opened a floodgate for me. And I started to talk about all the things that did not feel as though they were aligned in my life, my sense of identity, my sense of purpose. I was a, known only as a mom and a wife rather than as a writer and a speaker and a person who has her own <laughs> identity independent of family. Um, and as I talked, I could feel the tension in my back that had been so persistent and present, it had actually even extended to my tailbone, I could feel it release, almost like a, um, you know, an inner tube, like if you're letting the air out of something, it felt like that. And I said to Anne, the name of the um, yoga teacher I was with, because we just sat there, we didn't do any yoga, I just talked the whole time and I felt almost bashful that at the end of this, I'm like, so I'm all better now, what just happened? Um, and I said, I'm like, I'm really confused because I mean, I was confused for two reasons. One, I had sat down with someone who did not share my faith tradition. I was there for some movement and stretches. <laughs> That's not what I got at all. And suddenly I'm all better. So like, how did that happen? But then two, I said, you know, nothing in my life has changed. I don't, it's not as though I've taken all these steps for alignment to happen in my life. Why would the pain go away? And she is a very wise woman and said to me, you don't need to fix all of your problems in order for the pain to go away or in order to be healed. You just need to acknowledge the source of the pain. And that comment really stayed with me as I then began to pay a lot more attention to my body, to my emotions, uh, to all of the different signals that were coming to me about the ways in which more healing might be available to me and uh, honestly to other people. and ultimately, I hope, um, to our world. So before we go any further, I wonder if you'll define healing for us. You know, mm -hmm. this is kind of a, a term, you know, and then we'll get into in a little bit, just a little bit about kind of the theological and biblical view into it. But what, what do you mean by healing? Yeah, I do want to, when I'm talking about healing, think about it more from that theological and biblical view, because I think what I used to mean with the word healing, I think is probably more accurately described as curing, where there's a physical problem and a physical solution, and now you're done. Whereas I think that healing is a more comprehensive restoration to an integrated self, so body, mind, and spirit, uh, which involves not just uh, bodily or emotional healing, but also a restoration to God and to community. So there's a holistic 
sense when I'm using the word healing of what I'm talking about. And I don't actually think that that always means freedom from pain. I don't think it means, I think we can, I certainly, uh, I haven't mentioned this on this um, conversation yet, but I have a daughter with Down syndrome and so have spent a lot of time thinking about disability and the ways in which people with disabilities may or may not need healing. Uh, and so I don't think that healing is always about, it's, I certainly don't think healing means we all, if we're healed, will conform to the same bodily experience or type. And so when I'm talking about healing though, it is about uh, this understanding that we all can experience a restoration to self, to God and to community. And that is what healing uh, really is all about. From a theological perspective, um, you dive into the Greek New Testament words for healing, um, such as iome, therapeo, and sozo. Uh, how did these words take on deeper meaning in your life through your experience of, of pain and suffering and desire for healing? Yeah, so it was really interesting to me when I started looking at all of the healing stories in the Gospels about Jesus to you know, commentators pointed out that our English words don't necessarily convey, as is often the case, the depth of the Greek words that were originally used. And so, you know, you mentioned Iomai and uh, Therapuo, and those were the words that were traditionally used in Greek to uh, convey physical curing or healing, right? Where something has, someone was sick and now they are well. Someone had a fever, the fever is gone. Even, you know, in the case of like someone is blind and now can see. But the word that Jesus, not always, but often uses is a much more comprehensive word, sozo. And that is the same word that we find uh, translated as saved or, you know, cognates of it translated as salvation. So there's a spiritual component for sure to that word. It's cer certainly not simply physical. And there's just a more comprehensive reality. And so one of the things that really struck me in thinking about healing was seeing that I think it's four different occasions when Jesus uses exactly the same Greek phrase that we translate, your faith has healed you or your faith has saved you. And it's the same words in Greek, but we translate it differently depending on the context. One, for example, when he encounters a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. Uh, this is interesting, actually, in a couple ways. First of all, you know, as for readers who are or listeners who are familiar with the story, this woman is healed or her bleeding stops as soon as she touches Jesus's garment. But they've not had a personal encounter at that point. And the word that is used in Greek to describe that is iomai. So she's cured. Then Jesus essentially calls her face to face with him and later says to her, your faith has healed you. And that's where that word sozo comes in. So once she's actually had the encounter with Jesus, where he calls her daughter and he publicly is pronouncing her well, that's when that kind of more comprehensive, bigger word comes into play. But that same phrase is used when the woman who is washing uh, Jesus's feet with her tears when she does that, Jesus also says to her, and the way our Bible's translated is, your faith has saved you. But there's a sense of your faith has healed you. That's a healing story to Jesus as much as 
the woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. And that to me was really helpful in understanding, again, that more comprehensive notion of healing being about restoring us to who we are as persons rather than fixing our physical problems. This podcast is presented to you by CBF Church Benefits. At CBB, your benefits are our ministry. For 25 years, CBF Church Benefits has proudly served the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, providing retirement benefits and insurance services for CBF-affiliated church ministries and staff, along with CBF field personnel in Atlanta and around the world. CBB helps simplify the administrative burdens of your retirement plan, allowing you and your ministry staff to focus on your ministry. CBB can also help you maintain your overall benefit package, including life and disability benefit and international medical insurance for international missions. Through generous philanthropic support, CBF Church Benefits recently launched the Financial Wellness Initiative. This new initiative offers ministers the opportunity to receive financial relief grants, financial education experience, and financial planning services. Please visit CBF Church Benefits website at churchbenefits.org to learn more about CBB, our benefits, and the financial wellness opportunities designed to help you thrive in your mission and ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. So in the Gospels, we see Jesus healing the sick and relieving the infirmities of the broken. Um, and as you've noted, over 20% of the space in the Gospel records, um, you know, records of, of Jesus' life depict him as a, as a healer. There's a physical understanding of healing. There's a spiritual understanding of healing. And people seem to be healed miraculously. The blind made to see, the dying restored to life, the lame made well. Where does modern day healing fit into the conversation of, I hate to use this term, but the biblical view of healing? Yeah, I wrestle with that. And I, I would say I still wrestle with that because it does seem as though I mean, certainly there was something miraculous happening that there was a healing that was instantaneous and transformative in a bodily way. And I believe people who have experienced those types of healings here and now in the name of Jesus, I think that can still happen. That has not been my experience of healing. In fact, my experience of healing has been that most of those types of physical solutions or, you know, helps do happen in a biomedical context. And what I think is problematic, I think this was problematic in Jesus's day as, as it is now, is when we think that that is all that healing is about. And Jesus seemed to really underscore the fact, for example, you think about the um, man whose legs were paralyzed, whose friends bring him to Jesus, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. 
And we don't know exactly how he felt when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, but there's kind of the sense of like, but, but, but what about my legs, you know? And then Jesus goes on to actually uh, restore him in such a way that he can walk. But to Jesus, it seems like that sense of that spiritual restoration, you've been forgiven is what's most important. That's what's coming first. Or uh, there were 10 who had leprosy. Jesus cleanses, quote unquote, all of them. They all are um, healed of their leprosy. One comes back to Jesus and says, thank you. He is the one who Jesus proclaims with that word sozo, made well in that comprehensive sense, because he's had that gratitude and connect, reconnection to Jesus. And I think that to me is, at, for us in the modern day, the most important thing is to recognize that for all of our pharmaceuticals and for all of our surgeries and innovations, which are helpful in many ways, if we are only pursuing relief from our physical symptoms of pain and illness, we will really miss out on the healing that is available to us. And in fact, we might um, subvert that healing because we can manage pain rather than saying, what is this pain about? Is there an emotional or spiritual need that I have that actually can be healed uh, in an encounter with not just God, uh, because I think this is possible through other people as well, uh, but it, an encounter with love that can restore me, not simply so that I can you know, get my ACL surgically repaired, but so I can actually be again, like walking with purpose through life and connected to people, to God, to myself. Um, so it's that comprehensive nature of healing that I think we really need to understand individually and corporately. So, you know, it's not only these healing stories that are fascinating to look at through a modern perspective, but also um, the Bible does talk a lot about mental health, just not at first mm -hmm. glance. You know, the demonic possessions are potentially a peek into the ancient, mm -hmm. uh, their ancient theological understanding of mental health struggles. You know, whether it be chronic stress, anxiety, or or depression, where where does spirituality come into this conversation? Well, I think the conversation, well, here, I want to ask a clarifying question. Where does spirituality come into the conversation when we're looking at those stories about mental health in the Gospels? Or where does spirituality come into mental health conversations in our un current understanding of it? Both. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Let's see. Um, yeah. So I think, again, one of the things that it seems Jesus had a much more integrated sense of self than we do as moderns. So if we look back, certainly to the Enlightenment, when body and spirit or body and mind were separated. So we had even just like the scientific method being developed. And that was different than how you understand spiritual things and spirituality or religion became a private thing, not a public thing. There was just a, a divorcing, a separating of various um, disciplines and entities. And that resulted also, you know, in the famous saying, like, I think, therefore I am. So the sense of the cognition being the most valuable aspect of our humanity uh, and that has had all sorts of different, you know, effects in history and life for many, many years. Jesus, I think, and, and certainly a Jewish understanding of the human and a Christian one at its roots, although we were very affected by Greek thought as Christians early on, which again had more of a sense of 
the spiritual being the most important aspect of who we are and the body being uh, just this temporary vessel that broke down and decayed and was problematic. I think Jesus had a more Jewish understanding of the comprehensive nature of humanity as body, mind, and spirit all together. And so there would be an implicit assumption that if you are experiencing something that is harming you or others physically, there is a spiritual and emotional component, like that's all of a piece. And again, it can sometimes be helpful, fast forwarding 2000 years, it can certainly be helpful for us to be able to identify that hearing voices uh, doesn't necessarily mean that there is a demon who is in your brain or body, right? That there might just be a mental health concern that needs to be addressed and medication may very well be a part of addressing that concern. At the same time, if we're not paying attention to the fact that we live in a spiritual reality, we live in embodied as embodied selves, and we have this mental and emotional aspect to our being. If we're not comprehensively addressing, whether it's a mental health concern, a physical concern, or as you said, like anxiety and depression, these more um, emotional concerns that so many of us have, if we're not seeing the way those things relate and connecting them also to the spirit, then we're really missing out. So just to give an example from, you know, I think many people, whether or not they've actually been clinically diagnosed with depression or anxiety, nevertheless might be able to name the place that anxiety shows up in their bodies. And if we were actually paying more attention to the tightness in our shoulders and not simply blaming it, I remember actually at the beginning of the pandemic, there was this article in, I think it was the Wall Street Journal about how all these people staying home from the office, uh, they were having back pain because they didn't have ergonomically correct chairs in their home offices. And I thought, I wonder if that back pain might have to do with the fact that the world just shut down and we're all really scared about what's happening here. So again, that sense of not saying you should never replace your desk chair, but just saying that the, the mind, the body and the spirit are connected. And we can, especially for people of faith, we can go to God with our bodies, with our minds in prayer and say, help me know what is going on here that I might be healed. Let's step back from the personal perspective of healing to look at our community mm -hmm. and uh, society as a whole, um, whether you pick political idolatry or systemic racism or economic injustice or gender and identity discrimination. There's a lot of things ailing our society. Mm -hmm. So first, how do you measure the sickness of our society? Mm -hmm. How do you measure the sickness of our society? What a great question. I think you measure it by um, beginning to pay attention to the pain. And so I th that's there, it's not measurable that I know of. You know, I don't have some metric, but I think about even those um, scales they tell you to use in the hospital as an individual to demonstrate your pain. And I think the headlines of any day of the past year would demonstrate you know, the, the grimacing face, if we look at our society as a whole, in terms of whether we're, again, talking about, you know, mass shootings that include small children, or we're talking about, uh, you know, the um, uh, hearings that are uh, going on about 
what happened on January 6th, we can see it's not just that painful things have happened, but that we are fighting actively and um, and uncharitably, ungenerously about who is responsible for those things and what to do about them. We're not curious, we're not compassionate, we're not listening to one another when we speak in these broad terms about our society. And I do believe that one of the reasons that is the case is that we have not been willing to acknowledge harm, the harm of our history as a nation that has both a glorious story of freedom and liberty and justice and a really, really ugly and um, unjust story of oppression and abuse. And until we can, in our school books, in our you know national conversation, acknowledge that harm, pay attention to that pain and ask for the way forward that actually does lead to healing, I think we will continue to find ourselves in this place where measuring pain is almost um, not even a question we have to ask because all we need to do is um, turn on the news and we'll see, or not just turn on the news, drive through a town that has you know, been economically devastated, drive through a neighborhood. I mean, it's not like this is, because news, you know, obviously, what's newsworthy is often what's going wrong. Um, and there certainly are plenty of stories of beauty and hope in our nation. At the same time, there are plenty of uh, people in the real lives and in real local communities who are suffering for various reasons. And that metric of uh, the pain of our society seems pretty um, clear to me, even if I don't have like an actual way to measure it. You know, how, how do we even treat an ailment when uh, many that are suffering from it don't recognize it in their own lives? You know, in other words, how, how do you talk about gender and sexual identity inclusion when a person doesn't recognize they are inequitable towards people who identify differently from them? And yeah, I try to think about this from like a biblical perspective. And I think the mm -hmm. best example that came to mind was probably Jesus with the Pharisees and Jesus with uh, the ruling religious elite you know, he, he's trying to help them recognize just how much they're suffering from this spiritual and societal cancer, but they just don't want to recognize the, the diagnosis. So, so how do we, you know, how do we even talk to people about societal ailments when they can't even recognize it within their own life? Yeah. So I don't know that talking is always the way to do it is one thing. So I, I'm thinking about, I've just been doing a um, Bible study, teaching a Bible study at my church on the parables and the fact that so often when Jesus is in an encounter with those religious leaders, what he does is he tells a story that is an indirect way of addressing whatever critique they have of him or trying to demonstrate a truth about the value system of the kingdom of God and how that's so different. And, and so I do think stories um, are, as opposed to debates or like a direct exchange of here's why your position is wrong, um, might be one entry point. But I also do go back to love as what can seem like a really weak answer or a, you know, flowers and rainbows that don't actually um, hold up in the real world type of answer. 
but I believe that the love that is embodied in Jesus and offered to us through a relationship with the spirit of God is a love that is powerful enough to actually bring transformative healing into our world. And I think that's going to happen mostly through action. And each of us who actually is in a place of saying, okay, I don't pretend to see it all perfectly, but I do recognize uh, some of my participation in the collective harm that we and suffering that we are experiencing, we can begin to connect to other people who are in that same position and say, what can we do? Uh, I think one of the best ways to do that is to collectively pray for guidance on what action we can take in love for our communities, whether that is something that's, um, you know, kind of direct assistance to people in need or something that is politically minded and motivated as far as protests or petitions, or whether it is something that is um, doing more of that storytelling. Like we're gonna have a spiritual book club and try to actually share stories. We're gonna have people from different um, racial and ethnic backgrounds come to you know, a predominantly white church and share their stories of faith and also of their experiences. So I think there are um, thinking about those things on a local level, an indirect discourse and from a place of love that is again collective that where we're joining together and not thinking this is ours to do individually those are some of the thoughts i have as far as how we might uh, begin to have those conversations and see those types of changes i just want to say how dare you bring jesus and love into this conversation <laughs> I know, I know. It's a Sunday school answer, but there's a lot of truth there too. Well, I mean, it's not a Sunday school answer. It's just the fact that we live in um, an American society today in which we can't agree on Jesus. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. you know, the Jesus represented in the hellfire and damnation of the other uh, can't fit into the same conversation as the Jesus of love. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I recognize that's a tremendous part of it. Um, you know, so, I mean, what, what the frustrations of those who, you know, understand the, the suffering of our society today can see that Jesus, you know, suffered through that same experience of trying to convey a better world, um, better communities, better lives individually. So, um, but yeah, they crucified him for it. So. Right. Um, there's that too. So um, how do you, you know, I know you were kind of alluding to this um, just a, a second ago, you know, obviously the book is written for individuals, but also how do you imagine churches using this book? Yeah, I actually really do believe that there's such a communal aspect to healing. I really hope that churches will use this book. And I have a couple examples of churches so far. Um, my own local church is actually using it as a basis for a sermon series this summer. So they bought you know, a number of copies and are just going through two chapters a week and preaching a sermon, um, you know, that is related to whatever those themes are. For the most part, I've seen people using it in small group discussions, and I'm actually currently putting together a resource for churches to use it over the course of eight weeks with like a short five minute video from me with a little bit of teaching, but then a guide, you know, a one page read these two chapters, here's a passage from the Bible, questions to ask and reflect upon together that's in relation to both the biblical passage and the uh, chapters from the week. And then a practice, like something to take out into um, 
your life over the course of the week and a prayer at the end. So my hope would be that churches really would work through uh, in conversation and prayer together the possibilities of what, first of all, what does it mean to know God, to know Jesus as a healer? Because that to me is something that I have not really experienced a lot of as a Christian is thinking about Jesus as a healer and what that means here and now. But then second of all, to say, and where is that healing um, something that we need? So that might be personal, but it is certainly, as we've just been talking about, something that we need on a social and communal level. And so I think if we can, in community, be talking about what does it mean for the church to be an agent of healing within our communities and our society, that to me would feel like this book has really like done its job if people are having those conversations as a result of it. You know, I'm, I say this somewhat tongue in cheek, but you're kind of entering um, Mark Driscoll territory if you're having your church buy your book. And <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you two things. One, I did not suggest it. It's <laughs> a total surprise to me. And two, we have about 60 people in the pews on a Sunday. So there's no bestseller list that's going to be paying attention to the purchases. That'll be a fun tweet for later, uh, you know, later on for you to say. I was compared to Mark Driscoll today. Right. Um, so right. totally joking uh, for, for you and for anyone listening. Uh, but just a quick reminder, Mark Driscoll did have a firm buy hundreds of thousands of copies of his book so that he can make the New York Times bestseller list. So uh, Amy Julia Becker is not in that same category. So uh, our guest is Amy Julia Becker. Uh, she will probably never want to join us again after my final joke. Uh, the book is To Be Made Well. Uh, you can follow Amy's work at amyjuliabecker.com. Amy, it's always uh, a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, thank you for reminding us that Jesus invites all of us to go to the place of brokenness, to ask for help in that place, and to experience the beauty and blessing of being made well. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Minus the final part. No, I like that too. <laughs> really Before we wrap up our episode, we need to tell you about one more of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. BSK is excited to once again be sponsoring CBF's upcoming General Assembly in Dallas, Texas. Stop by our booth in the exhibit hall. Join us as we honor our 2022 Addie David Award recipient at Baptist Women in Ministries Gathering or attend a workshop being led by Reverend Erica Whitaker, BSK's Associate Director for Institute for Black Studies. We'd love to connect with you at this special event. Learn more about BSK at bsk.edu. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support. 